0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Perceptionist, it says to you, this is Congressman Phil Gingrey's office calling you. We're calling you because Congressman Gingrey has recommended you to President Bush as a home that he might go in and have dinner. Uh, Congressman Gingry has visited your church. Westside Baptist, he has called your pastor, and your pastor has given your name. Our president is wanting to get in touch with the grassroots supporters, and he wants to begin in Georgia. Now, this is going to be a photo op, I'll tell you up front. There will be media there from all over the world. Uh, But we want uh, him to come into your home and for you to host him uh, for a dinner. And immediately you start thinking, man, what am I going to fix? How am I going to decorate the table? You ladies are thinking. And so your wheels start turning World cameras there, CNN, Fox News, everybody in the world is going to see your spread. And as you're thinking about how you're going to decorate, you have a lot of choices because you have a lot of different uh, uh, utensils in your house. Uh, And we'll just look at the cups that you might use uh, as you're thinking about entertaining the president and his wife. Now, would you use fine Crystal for your glasses? Or would you use a paper cup? Now, you have some paper cups in your house probably somewhere. But I dare say without fear of contradiction that none of you ladies, not a single one, would decorate your table for President and Mrs. Bush with a paper cup. That you will take the finest china, the finest glassware that you have, and you will place that on the table. Paul is speaking in our passage today about vessels of honor. He is showing a parallel between a house and the church. And he says, just like a house has many different kinds of utensils, many kinds of vessels, those of honor and those of dishonor. Those you let the children take outside and play with, and those that you don't. And he says that God uses the vessels of honor. And the question is, which one are you? Are you fine crystal, or are you a paper cup? Let's turn to Second Timothy chapter 2. Our passage today is in verses 20 through 22. Now, I'm going to tell you how you can be that fine crystal that God will use. Beginning in verse 20. Now, in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, Paul has been talking about the Christian worker, the disciple-maker, which all of us are called to be. He has used several metaphors to picture us as Christians. He has used the soldier to talk about our wholehearted commitment to our task. He's talked about the athlete to describe our rule-abiding obedience. He's mentioned the farmer as one who is hard-working. We saw last week the good workman, the approved workman, who correctly handles the Word of God. And yet again, he's changed his metaphor today, and it is that of a vessel, a utensil. Now, this word vessel actually in the Greek can refer to pots and pans and dishes and cups, any household contents. And he says there are vessels of honor, and vessels of dishonor. The approved workman is the vessel of honor. The unapproved workman that we saw last week, those are the vessels of dishonor. Now, how can you be that approved workman, that vessel of honor, that fine crystal? Well, Paul tells us, beginning in verse 21, first you have the responsibility to cleanse yourself. He says in 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things. Now, the word cleanse means to clean thoroughly. Now, the Greeks had a way of intensifying a word. They would take a word and they would add a prefix to it, as the case with this word. The word itself is katharo, which means cleanse. But Paul wanted to intensify it. He wanted to show, I mean, to cleanse thoroughly. To cleanse completely. So he added ek, ek. And the word is ek, katharo, which simply intensifies the meaning. We might add mega, mega clean, very clean. He uses ek. This word is only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And Paul used it when he wrote to the church at Corinth about how they needed to deal with this man in their church who was involved in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Paul said how disgraceful this was, and he said this man's immorality was like leaven. And it was in danger of spreading throughout the church if drastic measures were not taken. And Paul said that they must cleanse themselves at Catharal. They must purge themselves from this man's influence. He must be removed from the church. Cleanse thoroughly. Now Paul says, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from these things. Now, notice things is in italics, meaning that word is really not in the original Greek. It just says, who cleanses himself from these. Well, what's he referring to? I think it's natural to say he's referring to those false teachers that he mentioned just a few verses earlier. Hamadius and Philetus. Paul says, you've got to stay away from these guys and their defiling doctrines and their defiling practices. You've got to cleanse yourself from all the influences that these false teachers, these unapproved workmen, might have on you. Now, what does it mean for you and I to be cleansed and to be cleansed thoroughly? First, it means we are to cleanse ourselves by purity of doctrine, purity of beliefs. Timothy was not to allow himself to be adversely influenced by the false teachings and beliefs of these unapproved workmen. He must thoroughly purge from his mind all falsehood and all wrong doctrines. He must maintain the pure beliefs and pure teachings and doctrines that Paul had taught him. You and I must have purity of doctrine. We must make sure that we believe correctly, that we are holding to the truth of God's Word, that we are listening to no false teachers. That we have not been influenced by the false teachers that pervade our airways, such as Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, only to name a few. But make sure that you have not been influenced and picked up wrong doctrines, wrong beliefs. We must say what the Bible says, but where the Bible is silent, we must be silent. I want to recommend a book to you that will help explain to you the basic, true doctrines of our faith to make sure you're believing correctly. The name of the book is Basic Christianity. It's by John R. W. Stott. You can pick up this book at Amazon for $5.40 plus shipping and handling. So it's no excuse for you not to have it. But there's does a good job of dealing with the basic beliefs of the Christian life. I recommend that for you to check it out and make sure you're believing correctly. You can also get a copy of our church constitution and bylaws where we have our articles of faith. And you can use that to check your beliefs. But if we're going to be a cleansed vessel, if we're going to be that fine crystal, we must first have correct beliefs. Secondly, we must cleanse ourselves by having purity of conduct. Paul said to Timothy, he must not allow any of their ungodly ways to affect him. Bad company corrupts good morals. Young people, hear that biblical truth. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's why your parents don't want you hanging around with those kids. They know that they will influence you negatively before you will influence them in a positive manner. One of the truths that comes through in this passage is, if we're going to be a vessel, if we're going to be that fine crystal that God will use, we've got to keep the right company. We've got to make sure we have the right friends. And you parents all know how crucial it is that your children pick good Friends, That they pick the right kind of people to be their friends. And he says, purity of conduct. This means that he keeps himself clean. He lines up his conduct with the Word of God. God will not use an unclean vessel. Now, God will use unbelievers. He used Nebuchadnezzar. He used uh, King Cyrus. But God's not going to use a filthy vessel. He's not going to use a vessel that is involved in immorality. Paul warns the people in Corinth as he writes about his own desire to keep his life pure so that he would not become disqualified in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Listen to what Paul says about how important it is that he saw to keep himself pure. Beginning in verse 24, First Corinthians 9. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body. Make it my slave. Why does he take such an effort to keep his body under control? He says, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. These preachers that think they can get in sexual immorality and six months later be back in the pulpit, they need to read this scripture. You know, a fine piece of crystal that you might place before your president one day, if it gets chipped around the rim, you don't place it out again. It has lost its value. You're not going to place a chipped fine piece of crystal in front of an honored guest. They might cut their lip on the rim. It's unsightly. And God will not use an unclean vessel. Now, there is forgiveness, but there are consequences that are still there. So first, we have the responsibility to cleanse ourselves by purity of doctrine and purity of conduct. Now, God makes some promises to the one who is willing to cleanse himself. When we cleanse ourselves in this way, God makes some promises to us. Things that He will do. We see these as we continue to read. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, that's our part. Now comes God's promise. He will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, first of all. Sanctified. Sanctified. Now, that word sanctified just means cleaned up and ready to use. Ladies, when you wash the clothes, and you take them out, and you iron them if they need to be ironed, and you fold them, and you place them in the drawer, those clothes are sanctified. It means they are cleansed. You've washed them. And they're ready to be used. Now, when you became a Christian, God sanctified you. He set you apart positionally. He declared you one of His. The same root word is the word for saint and the word for holy. But now you've got to be sanctified in your practice. And if you will have puritive conduct and puritive beliefs, God will see to it that you are set apart to be used by Him. I've been in a number of homes in my 30 years of ministry. Not so much nowadays, but back years ago, it was customary in many homes for there to be a china cabinet. Some of you ladies have china cabinets. And you know, it's something I've noticed about china cabinets, of course that's where people keep their fine china and their fine crystal, but they always have a glass door. You never see one that has a solid wooden door. The glass door is there because it's on display. You want to look in there and and they want to show what they have. You know, I've never yet, in all the china cabinets I've looked into, I've never seen a mason jar on the shelf. It's always a fine crystal. I've never even seen a jelly jar or a jelly glass. Now, some of you who are old enough remember the Bama jelly glasses, don't you? They had the bright idea of putting their jelly in glasses. And so when you finish with the jelly, you had a glass. The old Bauma jelly glasses. Those are the ones we got to play with out in the yard. But you don't see any of those in china cabinets either. Because you put aside the best to be used for the best occasions. I want you to know, if you will live in purity of conduct, and purity of beliefs, God will set you in His china cabinet. As fine crystal. And let me tell you, God always uses fine crystal. I don't care what meal He's serving, He always serves on fine crystal. He never uses paper cups, He uses a fine crystal. And so you'll be sanctified. Secondly, He says, useful to the Master. And this word useful means very useful. Again, the Greeks would add a prefix. This is a prefix, e-u, which we have for eulogy. You know, to be very much so. To be well useful. Again, the intensified word. What a privilege it is to be used by God. Now, I'm holding something in my hand that is very useful. Now, some of you may or may not be able to see it. It may look just like a piece of metal. But you know, when you start folding this thing out, First, it's a pair of pliers, and you can also cut some wire with it, and they are needle nose pliers, but that's not all. Uh, Also in here, there is a file, and the file also has a measurement, so you can measure with it, and then there's a can opener, and then there's a Phillips screwdriver, and then on this side, there's a knife blade, and there are a couple of other flathead screwdrivers, and then a smaller knife. And this is a fairly inexpensive one of these things, but this is very useful. Right? I mean, you can do a lot of different things with this. Now, you just have a Phillips screwdriver. There's not a whole lot you can do with that. You know, but all you can do is work on a, a screw that's got a, a Phillips head to it. can't hammer with it. You, you really can't use it like a pair of pliers. You can't really cut with it. Uh, Can't open a can with it to to drink out of particularly. This is very useful. Now, this is what God promises He will make of you and me when we live in purity of doctrine and purity of uh, conduct. He will make us very useful. He'll use you in many, various, and different ways. And Paul says useful to the Master now, this word master is the word for absolute ruler. Now, the absolute ruler determines where you're used. Now, sometimes we make a mistake and say, God, I want to be used here. I want to be used in the limelight. I want to be used over there. Like the fellow mentioned at the commissioning service for Terry and Peggy about the different gates around Jerusalem. You know, everybody wants to be at the beautiful gate. Or the valley gate. Nobody wants to work at the dung gate. But you know, the master determines where we serve. We're to be useful. Just to be served. Just to serve God. What a privilege. What a joy. So he says he will make us sanctified, set apart for service. He says that he will make us very useful. And then thirdly, prepared for every good work. The sense of being equipped. Purity of belief, purity of conduct, equips you for every good work. Righteous conduct plus righteous living equals serviceable to God. And what a privilege to be used by God. That He will use you and me to accomplish His kingdom work. There are very few things that I think taste any better than good southern fried chicken. And I mean good fried chicken. I've had some chicken that was not good fried, and it's not good, but good fried chicken. And you know, it's no better way to fry chicken than in an iron skillet. And some of you remember the days when your grandmother used to cook up-fried chicken in iron skillets. Now, it's something about that iron skillet that makes for good fried chicken. I remember when I was growing up, I sometimes would, would eat over at Terry's house. We were in high school, and her, her maid used to use an iron skillet to cook some of the best fried chicken. Uh, you know, you really need the, the old hog lard to make that crust really fluffy. That old Crisco and canola and all just won't make it that fluffy. But that old hog lard back then, they used, it was good. But you know, you you don't just pick a, a iron skillet up and and stick it on the stove and heat it up and cook with it. You know, you got to prepare it. You got to get it ready. You know, you got to scrub it and get it good and clean. And then you put it on the, on the fire and let it dry. And then as it dries and heats up, you put oil on it. And spread the oil on it. And then you stick it in the oven and let it cool down. And then it's ready to be used. It has to be prepared. Well, when God saves us, He cleanses us through the blood of Christ. And then He puts us on the heat... And we experience some heat in our lives, some adversity in our lives. All of that's preparing us. And then He takes the oil of the Holy Spirit and He covers us in the Holy Spirit and anoints us with His Spirit. And then He places us where He wants us and uses us as He desires to use us. That fine vessel used in His service. And it's your responsibility to stay useful. It's your responsibility that God has sanctified you and made you useful and prepared you for every good work. Now, it's your responsibility to stay useful. A man is responsible for keeping his tools useful. Now, there are two things Paul says in verse 22. Now, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, those are two commands, to flee and to pursue. First, you must flee from all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, this word flee means to seek safety in flight, to escape. It means, in our day and time, to run for your life. It means to run from physical danger. When Luke was writing in Acts 7 and he wanted to talk about Moses and Moses having to flee for his life from Pharaoh because he'd killed that Egyptian, he uses this very word to say Moses fled from Pharaoh. He was running from his life. When Matthew was writing about the birth of Jesus and how Herod had determined to kill all the children three years old and younger. And Joseph, in a dream, saw this was happening and he was told to go to Egypt, to flee to Egypt. Matthew chose this very word to talk about Mary and Joseph and Jesus having to flee for their lives. It means to flee with everything that you have to get out of there. Jesus says that The Judean Christians during the tribulation must flee to the mountains. He uses his very word. And so the word carries a very vivid picture of someone running as fast as they can to save their own lives. They're running from a life-threatening danger. Now, we as Christians are to flee the spiritual danger of sin and temptation. And we're to do so like we're running for our lives. It's a very vivid picture. But you know what I see? I don't see Christians running for their lives away from sin. I see them trying to get as close as they can to it without doing it. We want to flirt with sin. Rather than taking off as fast as we can and running away from it with everything we got, we say, well, let me see how close I can get without falling in you know if there was a 18 foot 220 pound bore constrictor up here or python snake you think I'd see how close I could get you remember that television show the flash I'd be a flash out of here I'd be fleeing that's the picture we're getting here. Run for your life away from sin, from all lustful, youthful lust, he says. Run away from it. Take off. Now, let's talk about the youthful lust that we're to flee from. Well, the word lust means a strong desire, not necessarily sexual desire in Scripture, though that is included. But actually, it's any strong, consuming desire. Paul recognizes that there are certain desires that come with youthfulness that tend to get weaker as we get older. Now, you young people will not understand this, but those of you who are my age and older know what we're talking about. Some things just don't have the attraction they had when you were in your 20s. And in your teens, some things just don't grab out for you like they did. And Paul is telling young Timothy, flee, run for your life from youthful lust. And there are three things that I think are included. There is a lust for pleasure, the lust for power, the lust for possessions. First, he says, flee from that craving for pleasure. Pleasure. That inordinate cravings for satisfaction of the physical appetites. That lust for food and drink and pleasure. This includes the uncontrollable sexual desires. We would speak about someone being a party animal. Man, they're just looking for a party. This is the picture of a Saturday night fraternity party on most of the major college campuses in America. Man, they just want to go for all they can get, experience all the physical pleasures they can experience of every sort. Paul says, run for your life from that lust for pleasure. Jesus triumphed over this temptation in his first temptation when Satan tempted him to make bread out of the stone. When he had eaten for 40 days and his hunger must have been strong. But he resisted. Next, we are to flee from the lust for power. That's the craving to be number one. The lust to shine. The passion to be dominant. The results of envy and quarrelsomeness. It's that determination to have our own way. I think Peter talks about these people in 2 Peter 2.10, when he says, "...especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority." Because they want to be the authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Got to be number one. I've got to be the top. I've got to be the best. I've got to have it my way. And usually they think their way is the right way. And that's why they want their way. Jesus triumphed over this temptation in the second temptation when He would not jump off the Top of the temple in order to draw a crowd, in order to to shine before men in a miraculous event. Third, there is that craving for possessions, that uncontrollable yearning for material possessions and the glory that goes with them. A bigger and better house, newer cars, latest gadgets, more and more money. You know, when you get a certain age, you realize, you know, money is just not that important. I mean, you only got ten more years to live. You can't take it with you. That's why you will see in the midst of a big development, an old house. How many times have we seen in the midst of a big residential development, an old house and acres of land surrounding it? And you think, well, why didn't those people sell all these acres of land? you know developers wanted to buy it because there's all these developments around. And you know why? Because the old mom and pop that was living there didn't care to have the money. They'd rather have the old house that they've been living in all these years. They didn't want the money. They didn't need all the hundreds of thousands of million dollars they could have gotten from selling that land. Now, their kids will sell it. (laughs) You can be sure of that. But they won't. It's not that important to them now. He says, resist, flee, run for your life. A couple other things he mentions. Run for your life from immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about the importance of fleeing from immorality. When he says, in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then again, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, He talks about fleeing from the love of money. As he says in verse 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you men of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. We must look at our lives, and we must see if there's any tendency in our life toward any sin. And I can be fairly certain that one of these three areas will be more of a problem for you than others. Whether it's a lust for pleasure... The lust for position or in power, or the lust for possessions. But you will find one stronger than the others, probably. And you need to look at your life and you need to identify what that is, and you need to run from it as you're running for your spiritual life. If someone at work is married and you're married, And you finding yourself attracted to that person in a physical way, you need to flee. Don't go up and talk to them and try to develop a relationship with them and see how close you can come to immorality without falling in. According to this verse, flee. Run for your life. Quit the job if you have to. It's better to lose your job than lose your marriage. If you're a person that always wants to run everything and always wants to be in control and be in the limelight, flee every opportunity to take control. Run from it. If you're a teenager that's tempted toward sexual immorality, those strong urges and desires are there. Flee from it. That means you don't go over to his house when nobody's home, when his parents are not there. That means he doesn't come over to your house when your parents are not there. That means you don't go off and park somewhere alone and spend all these hours alone. That's not fleeing from immorality. That means you always stay with a group and and you don't even come close to the opportunity for immorality. That's to flee. If you're tempted toward drunkenness, don't go to parties where you know there's going to be drinking. And if you go to a party and there is drinking, flee from it. Don't say, well, I'll just go in and sit down and, and, and just talk and, and, and just be there. That's not fleeing from it. That's flirting with it. We're to flee from temptation. We're to flee from youthful lust. Not tempt with it and not flirt with it. Secondly. Not only do you flee from youthful lust, but you pursue after certain things. Now when you're running away from one thing, you're usually running toward another if you don't realize it. This word pursue means to run after. It means to chase in war, or the term is used for chasing game in hunting. It was used of Paul chasing after Christians for the purpose, before he became a Christian, of catching them and persecuting them. He would pursue Christians all over Asia for the purpose. He was on his road to Damascus to find Christians so he could throw them in prison. You don't know what this word means? Hot pursuit. You remember a week or so ago when the police forces in our community were on hot pursuit of Brian Nichols? That's what the idea means. I mean, they would turn every ounce of manpower into finding him, into catching him. Somebody told me they were driving down the interstate that Friday afternoon, and 32 police cars passed them with their sirens on and their lights flashing, heading for where they thought he might be. Now, that's the word picture. You and I ought to be in hot pursuit of godliness. We're to be in hot pursuit of righteousness, a state of heart and conduct which is in line with Scripture. Hot pursuit of making my life in agreement with the Word of God. Hot pursuit of a renewed mind. We're to be in hot pursuit of faith, that humble, dynamic confidence in God that comes from being in His Word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. We're to be in hot pursuit of His Word. We're to be in hot pursuit of love, that self-giving love that puts others' interests above our own. It means being kind to our enemies. We are to be in hot pursuit of peace, which is that sense of well-being, that sense of wholeness. And notice what Paul says, we are to be in hot pursuit not by ourselves, but with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I told you earlier that one of the key themes of this passage is the company you keep It's very important. As you pursue godliness, you pursue it with other people of like mind and heart. Young people, surround yourself with friends who love God as you do. Surround yourself with friends who are pursuing after righteousness and fleeing youthful lust. Don't associate yourself and, and encircle yourself with friends who are running toward youthful lust rather than fleeing it. I'm afraid too many young people, even Christian young people, are fleeing righteousness and pursuing youthful lust. The company you keep will influence your behavior. Now, let me break this down for you. I said the word meant to pursue game. How do you pursue righteousness and faith and hope and love and all this? All right, let me break it down. Now, if I decide I want to hunt, say, wild turkey, now the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to set my mind on learning as much as I can about wild turkeys. I'm going to go and read about wild turkeys. I'm going to find out their habits. I'm going to find out what season, uh, when the hunting season is. I'm going to find out uh, where they are, where they live, what they eat, where I can find them, what kind of weapons, the best weapon to hunt them. I'm going to study wild turkeys. I'm going to learn as much about them as I can. Now, if I'm going to pursue righteousness, I'm going to study righteousness. I'm going to see what God's Word says about righteousness. I'm going to get out of my concordance and I'm going to look up righteousness and I'm going to read the Scriptures that have to do with righteousness. I'm going to find books about righteousness and I'm going to read about it. If I want to pursue love, I'm going to study love and what it means and what true love is and what the Bible says about it. If I'm going to pursue faith, I'm going to study it. I'm going to put my mind on it. I'm going to learn about it. I'm going to read about it. You get the picture? To pursue it means to go after it. Secondly, if I'm a hunter, I'm going to formulate a plan to catch that game. I'm not just going to read about it, but I'm going to formulate a plan. I'm going to determine what outfit I need to buy. I'm going to buy the gun I need to buy. I'm going to go out and if I need to, take uh, practice shooting it so I can shoot what I aim at. I'm going to learn how to, how to do the turkey call get old Tom Turkey to come around and, and, and come where I am. I'm going to formulate a plan of where I'm going to go. Where I'm going to find the turkeys. Where I'm going to hunt. When I'm going to go. I'm going to plan it. I'm going to formulate it. Same thing about pursuing love and righteousness and faith. If I am going to pursue love, then I'm going to formulate a plan to love my enemies. I'm going to identify my enemies and I'm going to formulate what I can do to show love toward these people. Whether it's send them a card, whether it's do a good deed to them, whether it's to call them and say, look, I want our relationship to be what it ought to be, but I'm going to formulate a plan. If I'm going to pursue righteousness, I'm going to formulate a plan to, to memorize Scripture so I can know God's heart and God's mind for righteousness. I'm going to memorize passages of Scripture that deal with righteousness. If I want to pursue faith, I'm going to formulate a plan to build faith. But then thirdly, the hunter must execute the plan. All the knowledge, all the formulating of a plan is no good if you don't execute it. I can have it all worked out, but if I don't get in my car and drive to where I'm going to hunt the turkey and go out and do the hunting, it doesn't do any good. And so you must execute the plan as you chase after righteousness, as you hotly pursue love and faith. So I would ask you to go before God and say, God, which one of these am I most in need to pursue? Love, righteousness, faith, peace. And then set about studying it. Set about formulating a plan to pursue it. To catch it. And then execute the plan. Keep catching it. Keep pursuing it until you have it. Do you want to be that fine crystal that God will use? Or that paper cup? To be the fine crystal, you must cleanse yourself by right living and right beliefs. You must flee all youthful lust and pursue, chase after godliness. Let's pray.